This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. This is The Battles of the Boyne and of Algrim, part two of two. As described in earlier podcasts, William of Orange took control of England in the Glorious Revolution of 1688 and became King William III of England. Soon after, he found it necessary to confront a rebellion in Ireland. The deposed King James II, with the support of King Louis XIV of France, landed on the island and encouraged the local population to resist English authority. If all went well, Ireland would be a stepping stone to the recovery of the throne of England. By the end of 1689, an English army had consolidated their position in Ulster, but not nearly as much progress was made as hoped. William was concerned that until Ireland was subdued, he would not be able to pay full attention to conflict on the continent. For this reason, the Dutch States-General urged him to take personal command of operations in Ireland in order to bring the war there to a speedy conclusion. William persuaded the English Parliament to vote for funding for the continuation of hostilities. With these monies, William was able to raise several new regiments and to conclude the hiring of a contingent of troops from Denmark. King Christian V of Denmark was able to spare the troops having recently concluded the Treaty of Altona with Sweden. Rather than join an alliance against France, which would have triggered French support for Sweden, Christian preferred to rent 6,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry to William. Among the Jacobites in Ireland, meanwhile, virtually nothing was being done to prepare for next year's campaign. The troop numbers were not augmented, little training took place, and no towns or fortresses were re-fortified. John Charles criticises James for leaving many infantry battalions in unnecessary garrisons, and compounding the mistake, not enough of these battalions occupied the key strategic towns. Tyrconnell was meanwhile suffering from ill health, but did manage to take a trip to Versailles to negotiate further help from Louis. 
The French king offered 6,000 infantry as well as a number of officers but demanded the transfer of an equal number of Irish troops to serve in the French army in Flanders. As the weather improved in spring, both sides ordered their respective armies to reform. The Duke of Schomburg, head of the Williamite forces, moved first, and at the beginning of May 1690, his forces struck southwards towards the fort of Charmont. The garrison were well equipped militarily, but due to poor planning, had insufficient food to survive a siege. The Duke offered generous terms and allowed the garrison to leave unharmed. For the Williamites, the ford of Charlemont was a significant victory, and together with the capture also in May of Bari Nakarag in County Caran, left them in full control of the north of the island. On the 14th of June, 1690, William landed at Carrickfergus at the head of 15,000 reinforcements. His strategy was simple, trusting in what he believed to be his forces' superiority, in quality as well as numbers, he would drive southwards via Newry and the Mori Pass, with his final objective, the capture of Dublin. As James was unlikely to give up his capital without a fight, he would meet the Jacobite army en route. James at first resolved to advance to the southern entrance of the Mori Pass, but the French commander, de Lausanne, suggested the position was too far advanced from Dublin and could be outflanked from Armagh. An Irish cavalry unit was sent to ambush the advancing Winnemites at the pass. They inflicted some damage on their opponents, but could not stop them from breaking through, leaving only one natural border between themselves and Dublin, the River Boyne. On the 29th of June, King James's army crossed the Boyne of the town of Drogheda and encamped on the northern slopes of the hill of Donore. Aware that the Winnemite army was little more than a day behind, the Jacobites hastily set up their defences, and to channel the enemy's forces, they destroyed the bridge at Slane, several miles upstream. Early the next day, William's forces arrived in the hills overlooking the northern bank of the Boyne. One detachment was sent on reconnaissance to the hamlet of Oldbridge on the southern bank, but found the Jacobite position there well fortified and came under artillery fire. William then decided to take a closer look for himself, and gathering a party of officers and advisers, rode towards the riverside, where he stopped to have lunch. As he left to depart, his group were fired upon by a Jacobite field gun. The initial shot killed two horses on one man, and the second ricocheted off the bank of the river and grazed William's right shoulder. William was not badly hurt, but was fortunate it was not worse. The Battle of Boyne nearly ended before it had even begun. The Battle of the Boyne began at the crack of dawn on the 12th of July, 1690. The key to the battle was whether the Williamite forces would be able to cross the river, defended by the Jacobites. William sent a contingent of about 12,000 men, led by the Duke of Schomburg's 49-year-old son, Meinhardt, the Count of Schomburg, to a river crossing upstream at Slane. But realising the bridge there had been destroyed, they went instead to try and ford the river at nearby Rosnery. 
a significant distance from the main centre of battle, it is still not exactly clear of William's intentions, whether a full-scale flanking movement or a feint. Plunging into the river from the high northern bank, the Dutch cavalry came under heavy fire from a unit of about 480 Jacobite dragoons, led by Colonel Neil O'Neill. In spite of their superior numbers, they became disordered and withdrew. Then, at about the same time as cannon fire was heard from the main battle, at about nine o'clock, the Count's guns and infantry arrived and they tried again. O'Neill was shot through the thigh in what turned out to be a fatal wound, and without their leader, the dragoons' resistance began to slacken. As O'Neill's dragoons began to fall back to Donore, the Count's troops started to cross the river. James from his command post at the hill of Donore began to panic. Wrongly guessing that William's main forces were at Rosnery, he ordered some two-thirds of his own force to march west and block them, a force which comprised some 17,000 Jacobite soldiers, including all the experienced French infantry who had arrived in Ireland that spring. That left about 8,000 Irish infantry to guard Oldbridge, where after an hour of artillery, William gave the signal for his men to advance. Hundreds of Dutch blue guards marched to the river and waded in, the water up to their chests and their muskets and satchels over their heads. As the first men arrived on the northern bank, they were fired upon by the Jacobite soldiers. As described by Gerard Fitzgibbon, quote, A sudden storm of smoke and noise swallowed the riverside. Dead and wounded, blue guards began to crumple as bullets cut into the water. The second, third and fourth line of Dutchmen powered across and began to rush up towards the Jacobite positions. A violent and furious fight for the riverbank broke out as men stabbed and battered and shot at each other in a haze of fog. One Jacobite officer charged forward and drove his sword into one of the first Dutchmen across the river, but he was trampled and killed moments later as more Dutch and orange uniforms swarmed out of the water. Within minutes, the Dutch had broken through and driven the first line of Jacobite infantry back, brutally seizing a foothold on the south bank of the river. Tyrconnell, realising that if the Blue Guards could not be driven back, the battle was lost, and he sent in the Irish cavalry. The Dutch huddled together in tight defensive squares and fended off the enemy cavalry swarming around them with musket fire and thrusts from their bayonets and so survived the charge. William ordered more of his regiments to cross the river, including the English, Danish and Huguenot troops. The raw and ill-disciplined Irish infantry were outnumbered and refused to charge into the hail of cannon shot flying at them. Again and again the Irish horsemen charged, rallied and charged again, trying to push back the advance of the enemy. Tyrconnell himself was in the midst of battle, knocked from his horse and injured. The Duke of Berwick's own horse was shot from under him, but he was taken away to safety. The Williamite forces were also suffering considerable losses, especially the Huguenots, whose colonel was badly wounded. Sensing the battle had reached a critical point and the Huguenots needed reinforcing, the Duke of Schomburg decided to lead his cavalry unit into the fray. In the heavy gunfire, the Duke was shot in the neck, and William second in command, one of the most renowned generals in Europe, slumped to the ground dead. Nevertheless, his troops continued to advance. 
Sensing victory, William also joined the fight. Mobilising regiments of Dutch, Danish and Enniskillen cavalry, he rode left towards the deeper ford at Drybridge, a few hundred yards downstream from Oldbridge, and began to wade across. The current was fast, and the horses struggled to keep their feet in the thick mud of the riverbed. William was not physically strong and suffered often from asthma. When he reached the southern bank, he had to dismount and lie down, barely able to breathe. But his lungs relaxed and he was able to remount and continue. The image of William III at the Boyne on a white charger is one of the endearing images of his reign, thanks to a 1778 painting by the Anglo-American artist Benjamin West, which became widely copied and distributed throughout the 19th century. By the time William was across the river, his troops were rapidly advancing. The vastly outnumbered Jacobites were tumbling up the hill in retreat. Richard Hamilton led one final charge into the Dutch and Enniskillen horsemen, but was injured in the attack and taken prisoner. The battle was won, but the French infantry rallied at the village of Dulic and fended off the Count of Schomburg's troops, who were chasing the Irish stragglers. The Jacobite losses were therefore not as heavy as they could have been, perhaps about a thousand men, compared to the Williamite army, which lost between 500 and 750. Given the size of both armies and the ferocity of the fighting, the casualties were not enormous. Nevertheless, for the Jacobites it was a devastating defeat, as it left Dublin and Central Ireland wide open. Also, the equipment they had to leave behind was of critical importance, and could not be easily replaced. James fled to France, and now with a lack of direction, the Jacobite army disintegrated, hundreds of soldiers dispersing. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. William ensured his arrival in the Irish capital was carefully choreographed. On the 6th of July, he entered Dublin in great splendour, riding in procession through streets crowded with jubilant Protestants before attending a service at St. Patrick's Cathedral. News of affairs outside Ireland quickly dispelled the joy of victory, for the French had just won a brutal naval victory over the English at Beachy Head, a few miles off the coast of Sussex. 
to make matters worse, word also arrived from the continent that the French had smashed the Alliance forces at the Battle of Fleurus in the Spanish Netherlands on the 1st of July. William became concerned that the French navy had gained command of the English Channel, but John Churchill, the Earl of Marlborough, captured the southern Irish ports of Cork and Kinsale in October 1690, confining French and Jacobite troops to the west of the country. The Jacobites still put up significant resistance. A Williamite army tried to take the town of Athlone on the River Shannon, but they lacked siege artillery and were forced to withdraw. William's next objective was the city of Limerick, where the Jacobites had concentrated the bulk of their forces. The defenders of Limerick repulsed a series of assaults, inflicting heavy casualties. Cavalry raids led by Patrick Sarsfield destroyed William's artillery train and heavy rain prevented replacements. Faced by multiple threats in mainland Europe, William withdrew and left for the continent in late 1690. To lead his troops in Ireland, he left in charge Baron van Ginkel, a senior lieutenant-general in the Dutch army. By late 1690, deep divisions opened up within the Jacobite leadership between those, including Tyrconnell, who were willing to negotiate a settlement with William, and others, led by Patrick Sarsfield, who refused to countenance compromise and insisted on continuing to fight. Louis XIV was losing confidence in the Irish campaign. He dispatched the General Marquis of Saint-Ruth, known for crushing Protestant revolts in France, who arrived at Limerick on the 9th of May 1691. He brought with him sufficient arms, corn and meal to sustain the army until the autumn, but no troops or money. In June, the main Winniemite army, led by Ginkel, attached Athlone, which they took on the 30th of June after a short but bloody siege. St Ruth failed in his attempt to relieve the garrison and fell back to the west. His initial plan had been to fall back on Limerick and force the Winnemites into another year of campaigning, but wishing to redeem his errors at Athlone, he appears to have instead decided to force a decisive battle. Genko, with 20,000 men, found his way blocked by St Ruth's similarly-sized army near a small village called Algrim in County Galway. It was there that then took place the bloodiest battle of the campaign, perhaps of all Irish history, the Battle of Algrim on the 12th of July, 1691. Each side had fielded about 20,000 men. The Jacobites had the advantage of being positioned on high ground and dug in amid the ruins of Algrim Castle. The Williamite army's advance would have to be made across flat fields that even in summer consisted of little more than bog. St Ruth knew that, aside from a few veterans of the French army and those who had survived the Battle of the Boyne, many of his troops had never seen battle before. Yet they would soon be expected to turn back an army of professionals from Holland, Denmark and Germany. He is thought to have given a speech beforehand, invoking the Catholic cause against the Protestant heretics. After heavy mist all morning, Ginkel moved his forces into position at about two o'clock in the afternoon, and both sides started firing upon each other. The Dutch general ordered a probing attack on the Jacobites' weaker right flank by a unit of Danish troopers and dragoons from Enniskillen. 
The Jacobites defended stoutly, and it was debated whether to completely call off the attack, but the Williamite leaders decided to fight then whilst they had the chance. So full battle commenced quite late in the day, about five o'clock. The Williamite left flank advanced first through the bog, sometimes waist-high in water, but were met by heavy gunfire from the Irish from behind reinforced hedgelines. The Jacobites fought ferociously and started pushing the startled enemy back. Ginko was concerned but saw an opportunity when he saw DeRuth move two of his infantry regiments and a cluster of cavalry from his left flank to reinforce the main battle on his right. The Dutch commander ordered his right flank to attempt to force a way across a causeway besides the ruin of Algum Castle, defended by Jacobites. An intense, close-fought battle raged for control of the castle with losses on both sides. The Jacobites, hunkered down among the ruins of the castle, were holding their own until disaster struck. Having run out of their first boxes of ammunition, they discovered that their reserve supply was of the English design, and too big for the muzzles of the French guns. The storm of fire from the castle began to fade as the Jacobites desperately tried to stuff oversized bullets into the muskets. When the next wave of Williamite cavalry came hurtling towards them, there was no fire to stop them. They tried to flee but were butchered with bullets, sabres and bayonets. De Ruth and the detachment of cavalry hastily charged towards the castle, but a quick-thinking Williamite artilleryman spotted the Jacobite commander and fired at him with cannon. The shot cut through the air and took St Ruth's head clean off his shoulders and his decapitated body was flung from his horse. His lieutenant, General de Tessé, tried to rally the troops, but he himself was shot three times and slumped across his horse, barely alive. The Jacobite infantry, in confusion and for want of orders, began to break from the field in panic, pursued by the Williamite cavalry. Thousands of them were stabbed and slashed to death, and it would have been worse with the light not beginning to fail. As described by a Danish eyewitness, quote, The Irish fled all over the fields, not knowing where to turn, since from all sides the inescapable violence met them. Many men and horses pierced by wounds could have neither flight nor rest. Sometimes trying to rise, they fell suddenly, weighed down by the mass of their own bodies. Blood flowed over the ground, and so inundated the fields that you could hardly take a step without slipping. Such a horrible sight. At the close of battle, 7,000 had been killed, and the bulk of the remaining Catholic leadership lay among the dead. This was the point at which the Catholic threat extinguished in Ireland for the next hundred years. When word of the victory reached Brussels, the city's guns fired three blasts in salute of William's army. William judged it imperative to wind up operations in Ireland as quickly as possible, to turn to the French threat on the continent. He understood that this could be best achieved by giving certain limited favours to the Jacobites, including a measure of toleration and guarantees in relation to land ownership. The result was the Treaty of Limerick on the 3rd of October 1691, which formally ended the war in Ireland. The treaty itself was not overly punitive, enshrining Catholic freedoms and property rights to those who swore allegiance to William and Mary. 
Those who wish to leave Ireland for a new life in France were permitted to do so, and it is estimated that about 12,000 individuals took up the offer and came to be known as the Wild Geese. Over time, though, the Protestant government set about refashioning the treaty and issued a number of penal laws that disadvantaged Catholics. Within a short time, only about 20% of Irish land remained in Catholic hands. In 1697, the Dublin Parliament passed the Banishment Act, which expelled every Catholic bishop from Ireland, one step of many on the legal suppression of the Catholic people. While the Winnemite War raged in Ireland, in Scotland a Jacobite rebellion also flared up. Often the fighting between rival Scottish clans was quickly subdued. However, one incident there was unfortunately to poison relations between England and Scotland for decades. William offered a pardon to all those who swore allegiance before the 1st of January 1692. Most of the Highland chiefs did so in time, but the accidental failure of the Macdonalds of Glencoe to do so led to their massacre at Glencoe on the 13th of February 1692. William's intention had been to frighten the Highland clans into submission. Instead, it generated only fury and renewed defiance. Although the violent disruption caused by the glorious revolution between England on the one hand and Scotland and Ireland on the other was a relatively short duration, writes Frank O'Gorman, quote, it was of momentous importance for the future. The Jacobite cause, with its implications of civil uprising and French intervention, acted as a catalyst for a powerful assertion of Scottish national feeling. Jacobitism in Ireland provoked an upsurge of Catholic sentiment and anti-English feeling that could only be dealt with by force of arms, end quote. In the long term, however, the Glorious Revolution paved the way for English domination of the British Isles through the military suppression of Irish resistance and a more peaceful negotiation with Union of Scotland in 1707. In time, Britain became more closely united than it had been in the 17th century. Yet the linkage between William with the conflict, and in particular with Ulster Protestantism, had made the celebration of his life more difficult than in the case of other monarchs. The conflict in Ireland was just one component in the much larger continent-wide struggle for power to be described next time. I hope you can join me then for the Nine Years' War of 1688 to 1697. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com. Please go to patreon.com stroke history Europe, where for $3 a month you can gain some extra material. It's always great to hear from you, either on the Facebook page, Twitter at History Europe KB, KB for Key Battles, or you can write to me directly, Carl at C-A-R-L at historyeurope.net. I hope you can join me next time. Until then, all the best and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.